For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is an encore edition of Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, measuring the metrics of loneliness and other impacts of pandemic life. Have you been noticing any especially vivid dreams lately? Find out how dreaming during a global crisis might be different. And advice on making the transition to living in the land of geriatrica from Marilyn Hines, MD. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. We are living in an unprecedented time, one that is causing some profound psychological changes at a faster rate than many expected. An ongoing data collection project through the UA Department of Psychiatry is documenting this through a series of monthly surveys that are taken by 1,000 volunteers across the nation. Among the topics these surveys inquire about are loneliness, stress, sleep habits, and a person's willingness to take a coronavirus vaccine. Here to explain is William Scott Kilgore, Ph.D., a UA professor of psychiatry, psychology, and medical imaging. We sort of switched gears uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Once I saw what was happening back in March, I realized that this was going to be a big deal and we needed to start refocusing the lab, especially since uh, we were looking like we were going to be shutting down and everybody's going to work from home. I thought, why don't we go ahead and put in uh, a survey and start to find out how people are responding to the pandemic itself. So we put together a whole bunch of questionnaires and a lot of different kinds of questions about the pandemic and how people were feeling and started collecting data on that. But a lot of these areas were brand new to me. I had not really delved into them before since we were having people stay at home and socially isolate. It occurred to me that one of the biggest things we're going to deal with here is loneliness. So we put in the loneliness scale. Explain how that scale runs, and in comparison to some of the other topics that you have studied, is loneliness difficult to quantify? Well, this is a a standardized metric that has been used in many different uh, studies over the years. So we focused in on one called the UCLA Loneliness Scale, and it's a 20-item scale. It has uh, a lot of different questions about how you feel when you're alone, how you feel uh, if you... Uh, have somebody that you can turn to and talk to about problems? Uh, Do you feel close to other people? Do you feel left out in your life? Uh, Do you feel like you have good relationships with other people? And then you just rate how you feel on those 20 items, and it gives you a nice standardized score that tells you probably uh, how lonely you are compared to other people. And so we used a cutoff score uh, that has been published previously to identify people that were probably experiencing some level of loneliness in their life. What sorts of results have you been seeing? I mean, what can you share from the data that you've collected uh, at this point? Yeah, we started collecting the data back in April of this year once we realized that, uh, that the pandemic was going to be a, a very big deal. And we've done that every single month since then. So we get about 1,000 people to take our survey each month. Uh, And we have six months of data that we've analyzed fairly intensively now. And we looked at their loneliness scores month by month. And what we've seen is that uh, as the pandemic has continued, uh, the rates of loneliness have continued to increase uh, month by month, almost in a linear pattern. Uh, We know that people were feeling lonely before the pandemic. 
that compared to your rates 20 years ago, most people say that they're much more lonely than they used to be. But once the pandemic began, we saw that it really surged in that first month that we all had to stay home and socially isolate. But then people started to realize that the pandemic wasn't going anywhere and it was continuing on uh, month by month. So we divided our sample out into those who were under a lockdown and those who were not under lockdown status at the time that we collected data. And what we found was that those who were under lockdown are showing uh, a much more severe increase in loneliness. So early on, back in April, about 43% of the population was meeting a cutoff that said that they had high loneliness. Over that six-month period, that 43% has now increased up to about 64% of those who are under lockdown are reporting that they're having a, a very high level of loneliness. But even those that are not under lockdown are also showing loneliness. We're still getting rates about uh, half the population that's not under lockdown is also reporting lonely. So really, everybody is feeling much more lonely than they did before the pandemic at this point. There are those people that I'm sure you probably know some or you've seen it online, people who say, I can stay alone forever, that I'm, I'm okay with this. And if anything, people who feel relieved of the social mm, obligations that they used to have pre-pandemic. And that's the thing with loneliness is that, uh, you know, loneliness is not simply just the social isolation. It's not just being away from people. It's really how you interpret that. You know, so for some people, they like being alone and they thrive being alone. And so it really isn't a problem for them. But for the person who perceives the world as being non-supportive, as being as though they don't have uh, enough friends or family or people that love and support them, those are the people that feel lonely. And so that's really how we define loneliness is sort of like a hunger for that social contact, a hunger for that, that, that love and that support from other people. And there are individual differences. Some people just don't need as much of that as others. Tell me a little bit about how pandemic sleep habits are changing and uh, how that's affecting people. Well, we conducted a, another study several months ago where we were looking at how people sleep. And one of the questionnaires we gave them looked at the fears that they had of the pandemic. We hypothesized that you know, being afraid of the virus was probably going to be affecting uh, people's mental health, that that fear was going to lead to uh, anxiety and depression and even suicidal ideation. And so one of the things we looked at was the role that lack of sleep may play in that suicidal ideation. And so we collected data on people's insomnia. And what we found was that, yes, if you're more afraid of the pandemic, you also tended to be higher in your suicidal thinking. But really, most of that was being driven by your sleep habits. So if you were getting a good night of sleep every night, those individuals uh, really didn't seem to be having as much suicidal thinking. But if you were not sleeping well, it really is the fears driving your, your sleep problems and then those sleep problems in turn influencing uh, your mental health and your suicidal ideation. And we've been looking at resilience during the pandemic. And one of the major factors in that resilience and your ability to bounce back from uh, this terrible thing that we've all gone through is the amount of sleep that you're getting. People who are sleeping better are actually coping more effectively. They have you know, less depression, less anxiety, uh, and a more positive outlook overall. What kind of data have you seen regarding how people are reacting to the availability of a vaccine against coronavirus? Yeah, we started collecting those data uh, last month. We wanted to find out in the very first month that the vaccine became available, 
how were people feeling about it? And so we uh, administered a survey to uh, about a thousand people last month to get their opinions on it. And what we were finding is about half of people say that they're not willing to get the vaccine, even if it became available to them, that they would not be willing to take it at this time. And then we also ask a question like, how afraid are you of the vaccine? And again, about 40% of people, 45% or so, said that they were very afraid of taking the vaccine. So there's a lot of fears and a lot of concerns out there. So what we found in the survey was that uh, like being afraid to take the vaccine was actually highly predicted by greater political conservatism. So the more conservative you were, the more afraid you were to take the vaccine and being female. So females were actually less willing to to uh, take the vaccine itself and also being of non-white ethnicity, uh, having greater anxiety and a lower annual income and lower formal education. So that was the, the various factors that when you combine them together, those are the people that said they were most afraid of, of the vaccine. On the other hand, the willingness to actually take the vaccine if it's offered to you was predicted again by uh, being more liberal, uh, being uh, having a greater fear of contracting the virus itself, being male, having more education, having higher income, and having less psychological resilience, and being white and older. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of a combination of different factors that play into it, but the strongest one really was your political uh, liberal versus conservatism seem to be driving most of it. My guest was William Scott Kilgore, Ph.D., a professor of psychiatry, psychology, and medical imaging, and the director of the SCAN Lab at the University of Arizona. A frequent discussion happening now on Twitter is about the kinds of dreams that people are having and what seems to many like an enhanced ability to remember them while awake. To provide some guidance on the issue, I talked with Michael Grandner, the director of the Sleep and Health Research Program at the University of Arizona. He's an enthusiastic explorer of the secret world that we all spend time in when we close our eyes. This question sort of first came to me from just a person I know was a friend of mine who were having a conversation and then she's like, Oh, and by the way, I've been having the craziest dreams lately. This was like back in March, um, March or April. It's like, I've just been having the craziest dreams lately. Is there anything up with that? I'm like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. I wonder if, if this is something that's happening. And then a few people, other people kept saying it. And then I was in uh, my lab meeting that we have every week with all the students, which is now Zoom and not in person. Uh, and I'm like, hey, I'd had this, I've had these couple of conversations with people, and they keep bringing this up. And I, and I think this might be a thing. And then everyone started talking, all the, diff- all the students, whether they're grad students or undergrad students or whatever, that a lot of them were like, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. And I'm like, I think, I think this is a phenomenon. And then what started happening is, you started seeing some like reports in the media of this because clearly people are talking about this. And so that got me to thinking, we don't have any data on what happens to dreams and pandemics. Like it just doesn't exist. There's no scientific data on this, but we do know a little bit about dreaming and why this 
might be happening if it was something systematic. So that got me to thinking that there's, there's probably a couple of things going on. One is that part of the function of dreams and part of what just dreams are is us working through life and we go through something or we go through a change or we're trying to integrate something new into our lives. And dreams are sort of a way our brain irons out some of these wrinkles and, and helps you know, mix all the ingredients together or use whatever metaphor you want. Dreams are certainly good at that. And make this experience we're going through part of the fabric of our life and our, our, our understanding. And it just so happens that we're all going through something at the same time, and it's a similar thing. So it's like when people start a new job, they'll often dream about the job. You know, when people are, you know, just come home from a trip, they'll still be dreaming about the trip. Like, so when you go through something in your life, it often finds its way into your dreams as you're processing it and understanding it. But we're all going through a similar thing of staying at home and wearing masks and being afraid of getting sick and worrying about family members and, and all of these sorts of things. It goes without saying we were also going through an election during a pandemic. So there was lots of, there was lots of things that lots of people were worried about, and it was all sort of intermingled. So maybe one reason that this is happening is just, you know, we're all experiencing this together. And, and we're all experiencing something, even if the, the way we're experiencing it might be different. We're all experiencing it. But then the other thing I was thinking was, is there something systematic about sleep itself that's changing? You know, what I was guessing was, and, and this seems to be borne out, that three things were happening to sleep. Number one, people are sleeping in a little later than they normally would. And the thing about dreams is they become more vivid and more memorable later in the night. The longer you're asleep and, and later in your sleep phase, they take on more of those characteristics. So people are sleeping in on average a little later. And on average, they might be sleeping a little longer. So because remember, those dreams toward the end of your night tend to be more vivid. So if you've been cutting your sleep off before you really get into those without realizing, and now you're rebounding and, and having it more. Um, the other thing that I think might be happening is people's sleep might be a little more shallow. A, that happens when you stretch the sleep over a slightly longer period of time or change the schedule. But if there's more stress, that'll create also more awakenings during the night. Even if you don't remember them, you might be more likely to wake up from a dream, which would make you more likely to remember the dream you would have had anyway. So, I think the two main things going on are that, first of all, there's the experience angle of it, that we're all integrating this, this new reality into our life, and dreams are a way that we do that. But then also sleep itself may have changed for some people where they might be set up to have these dreams more by sleeping in a little longer, a little later, and maybe waking up a little bit more during the night. What would you recommend as some of the basic techniques for having better sleep hygiene, a phrase that I heard you use in an interview? Yeah, sleep hygiene is a concept of how do you set yourself up for the best sleep you can. For most people, sleep hygiene can help a lot. So one way to remove barriers would be avoiding bright light at night that sends a daytime signal to your brain when it's also trying to wind down and you don't want to create that confusion, um, especially light in the blue-green spectrum that triggers that circadian active uh, component in the brain. Also, avoiding caffeine later in the afternoon. Caffeine can impact sleep four to six hours in most people, but sometimes eight to ten hours or even longer after you ingest it, you have a hard time winding down. Um, alcohol. Alcohol might help you fall asleep, but it makes sleep more shallow. 
one or two drinks, probably not too much, but more than that might really have an impact. Nicotine, smoking, you shouldn't do it anyway, but nicotine's a stimulant. So people who smoke at night have more insomnia. People who eat heavy meals at night get more reflux. Things like that, things that are just in the way of getting good sleep. If your sleep environment, if you've got an old mattress that's not comfortable or you're too hot or you're too cold, that'll get in the way of good sleep. So removing some of these barriers, if there's noise, Think about a noise machine or earplugs or closing the door, whatever you can do to, to insulate yourself. Setting regular schedules, rather than removing barriers, this is something that can help set you up for better sleep. So the brain is a pattern recognition machine. Feed it a pattern. If you want yourself to get sleepy at a certain time, start training yourself to go to bed at that time. Uh, and eventually you'll learn. If you want to get hungry at noon every day, start eating lunch at noon every day, and eventually your body will learn when to get hungry. Same with sleep. One way that can help set that up is having a regular wake time. You can't always control when your body is going to get sleepy, but you can control when you drag yourself out of bed. Setting that regular wake time, maybe slightly earlier than you want it to be, can help set you up to get a nice morning signal um, at a regular time that can help start your day, especially if you get bright light and movement relatively soon after you wake up. That'll also not only help you with your energy level and mood during the day and help regularize your rhythms, but the little timer starts going off that starts counting down how long you've been awake. So the longer you're awake, the hungrier you are for sleep. And so usually after about 16 to 17 hours, the body's ready for sleep. So if you start that clock earlier, then you'll be ready at a regular time too. Um, another thing would be you know, not drinking excessive liquids in the evening, putting screens down. Um, and it's not so much about the screens. The light from the screens can, can be an issue, but it's more about the distraction where you mentally want to be able to wind down before you get into bed. And if you're so distracted, you're not taking that time. So anyone who gets into bed and then they say, well, my mind just keeps going and it has a hard time winding down. You should not be doing that in bed. That's like saying, I hit the brakes when I went, got in front of the stop sign, but now I'm in the middle of the intersection. Why didn't I stop at the stop sign? Well, you didn't slow down enough before you got to the intersection, before you slammed on the brakes. You don't want to do that for the bed either, because then what happens is your body just gets used to being in bed, and you can train yourself to, to wind your brain up in bed, because that's what it's used to doing. So you want to give yourself enough time to wind down. My guest was Michael Grandner, Ph.D., director of the Sleep and Health Research Program at the University of Arizona. You can find links to explore his research on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Marilyn Hines started her medical career as a pediatrician and author of books on parenting advice, but she's also known as a columnist for the Arizona Daily Star and someone who understands aging from the inside out. Now at age 90, Hines is celebrating the release of her book, A Traveler's Guide to Geriatrica, a journey into the changing land of aging. It's a friendly collection of advice, stories, and family history, featuring illustrations by cartoonist Dave Fitzsimmons. So I talked with Marilyn about what it takes to become a true citizen of geriatrica. I start out by saying I am an immigrant to a new land, where many, but not all, of my friends and relatives dwell. 
No passport is needed. There's no border to cross. Sages tell us we live our lives one step at a time. One day, maybe without even realizing it, we step into geriatrica. And geriatrica is a word I made up because it talks about a country. And I went on to say, however, everything feels strange here. Even though I've lived here long enough to speak Medicare, I still feel like an immigrant sometimes. And I think it's important to realize that people did not age to the level that they do now. And in relatively good health, this is, of course, before the pandemic. And I think that the old versions of what you do when you're, uh, when you're growing old may be outdated, and we have to sort of pay attention to the elders in our community, look around and see what some of them need. And uh, I think one of the really important things is that the children of aging people remember or, or read the book in order to find out uh, what they might be expecting. Yeah, you use the phrase reverse parenting. Yes. And, yes. and that certainly is an issue that we're dealing with. And right now with the pandemic, there are so many people who are maybe not only taking responsibility for their own safety, but for the safety of their children and the safety of their parents. You add that to a worldwide pandemic and a world that has been turned upside down, and it can be a problem. But I do want to tell you one thing cheerful. Two years before his death, I asked my father what it was like to grow old, and he replied, every day over 80 is pure velvet. I plan to cuddle up in each velvet day I have, and what makes my day velvet is the privilege of still being somewhat useful to others. For this, I thank my readers. <laughs> little maudlin. <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it maudlin. I, I call your, your father's sentiment very comforting. Okay, okay. Now, I have to ask you two questions. How old are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm 51 now. Okay. Just turned 51. Do you have children? No, I do not. Okay, okay. 51, of course, is uh, a mere child to me. <laughs> <laughs> Because there is a big change when you become a nonagenarian. Oh, by the way, um, you know that David Fitzsimmons illustrated the book. And when I wished him a happy birthday once and told him that I was becoming a nonagenarian, he said, the term nonagenarian may be accurate, but it sounds like non-fattening or non-violent a form of subtraction rather than glorious addition. Yes. I prefer my invention, sapogenarian, derived from sapienti, Latin for wisdom. So that's kind of a nice term. It sounds a little better. Yeah, it does. There's a really cute illustration in your book of a child telling someone that their grandfather is an octogenarian yes. and imagining him with uh, eight octopus-like legs. Well, Fitz is one of uh, two sons. Glory. <laughs> He's a visionary. <laughs> yeah, really, really. Um, okay, let me see where we were, if I have any nice quotes for you. Here's a new word, elder-proof. Like child-proofing, elder-proofing our home and life starts with prevention. And I go into how you do make your house safer. Yeah, and another aspect of that is you made the decision to move from the home where you had been living by yourself 
to making a transition to an assisted living home. It wasn't assisted living, it was independent living, but you're right. In, I'm sorry, independent living. Um, and, and in the process of doing that, you looked at your book collection, for instance, and you made some arrangements to have those books taken care of. And not everyone does something about their household contents. And then that becomes a burden on their children when the day finally comes that they pass or, or change living situations. So I think that was really neat how you address that situation head on. And that's, I think, an example of the sort of forward thinking that you promote in geriatrica. Thank you. It's very interesting because it would be so easy to have backwards thinking. <laughs> but I did try to figure out how to um, help my fellow elders. And um, the way things are going now, it is really a privilege to be in relatively good shape at an old age and when people ask me, you know, what, what, what are the factors that enable people to grow into old age, the first thing is good genes, so you have to pick your parents well. But the second thing is money, because your parents have to have enough money to feed you properly to see that you're educated. And the third is just luck, because you didn't... Uh, crash your motorcycle when you were 18, you know, didn't have to go in the army and get shot at. So luck plays a big role. I think, I didn't put this in the book, but I think some of it is a little bit of attitude because I I have friends that groan about their looks or their infirmities and others that just say, well, this is what it is, I'm going to make the most of it. I think that's partly a personality thing. And We do inherit some personality traits from our parents. Do you have any other quotes from the book you'd like to close with? Is there a a parting thought that you'd like to share with us? There's some funny ones. The mirror tells me there are better ways to look and feel than angry or upset. I may smile at myself, stick my tongue out, or mimic an opera singer belting out an aria. This nonsense helps me find perspective. And I do do this. There's a great sense of of, um, relief of tension when you stick your tongue out yourself in the mirror. Well, maybe I'll have to try that. (laughs) Not on the radio. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Here's, here's, Here's one I love. Doctors cure or try to cure diseases. They cannot cure aging. I told my doctor, I hope I expire before she retires. Doctors need to be told how much they are appreciated. And I really believe that. (laughs) My guest, Marilyn Hines, M.D., wrote A Traveler's Guide to Geriatrica, A Journey into the Changing Land of Aging, with illustrations by Dave Fitzsimmons. It's available now, published by A3D Impressions. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Yasmin Acosta. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.